Welcome to the 20-Minute Bible Study, a teaching podcast from Faith on Hill Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill. And while I put 20 minutes on the timer, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Well, with 20 minutes on the clock, we must pay attention. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Why does he start the second chapter with that? Whenever you see the word therefore in your Bible, it's it's hokey, it's kind of a cheesy saying, but my, my kids would say it was cringe. But when, whenever I see the word therefore in my Bible, especially at the beginning of a chapter or a section, I, I ask, well, what is it there for? And what it means is when we say that is we say, okay, if that is in there, then what is being talked about next is in direct reaction or response to what was talked about previously. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. What have we heard? And why must we pay careful attention? Well, it's because of what he said back in chapter one. What have we heard? that the fullness of God is expressed through Jesus, that Jesus is not just another human, nor is he some sort of angelic super being. He is in very nature God himself in human flesh. For since the message spoken through the angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The the people of Israel understood that the, the core, the foundation of their covenant agreement with God, what Christians refer to as the old covenant, that the core of that was the Ten Commandments that Moses received from God on Mount Sinai. And they understood that it was through angelic messengers that Moses received these commands. And so what the writer is saying is, the angels brought us the first covenant, and it was binding. And throughout the history of the Jewish people, when they violated that covenant, there was consequence. When they were disobedient to God, there was just punishment. So what the writer is saying is, we have a better covenant. Our covenant didn't come from angels. It came directly from God through Jesus. And since Jesus is superior to the angels, since Jesus is superior to all other beings, how much more is the covenant that he brings binding and authoritative? He says that we first received it from the Lord. We believe that. Then it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Those are the apostles, the witnesses, the people who were there when Jesus was alive, when watched him die in many cases, experienced and interacted with the person they believed to be the resurrected Jesus. Many saw him ascend into heaven. 
So he says, we received this from Jesus. It was confirmed by those who saw him. God also testified it through signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts by the Holy Spirit distributing according to his will. Incidentally, uh, the Holy Spirit has a will. It's not an it. It's not some vague force. The Holy Spirit, he is active and working and moving. Part of the Trinity, equally God with God the Father and God the Son. But what the writer is saying is, is our covenant, our new covenant comes from a greater source than the angels. And if the covenant with the angels, or the, sorry, not with the angels, but that came through the angels from God was binding and authoritative, how much more so is the one that we have from God himself? It is not the angels, verse 5, that God subjected the world, uh, that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place which, where someone testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of him, a son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And he's quoting there uh, from the Psalms, from, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. Um, now, he doesn't say that, Psalm 8 through 4 through 6, because those chapters and verses uh, weren't invented yet. But that's where he's quoting from. The writer is quoting from, from the Psalms. And he's saying, <clears throat> it's the, the angels aren't the ones who God died for. The angels aren't the ones who God is preparing a place for. In verse 8, he says, In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is subject to them. And yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. For we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, but is now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So here the writer is speaking of Jesus' incarnation, God becoming humanity, living among us, lower than the angels for a while, but now glorified, seated, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, by whom, or for whom and through whom everything exists, and by whom, that's also correct, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And he says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. There the writer is quoting from Psalm 22, verse 22. And again, verse 13, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. They're quoting from Isaiah 8, verse 17 and 18 in those two different quotes. What this is speaking about is that Jesus has brought us in. He was the first of salvation. When he rose from the dead, the human part of Jesus was the first to experience the resurrected life. But he is bringing us in and gathering us in from every tribe and tongue and nation and every part of the world. And he's bringing us in together to be part of God's family. Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who, were, who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. So this is speaking of Jesus setting captives free, 
breaking the power of sin and death. Now, there is a debated point among Christians on this. Has the power of the devil been broken now? Or is this speaking of future events when Jesus comes back in his second coming uh, and, and the devil is thrown into the lake, is bound for a thousand years, then thrown into the lake of fire? We talked about this recently on Sunday mornings. Whenever we speak of the kingdom of heaven, I fully affirm the concept that the kingdom of heaven is both already and not yet. It is here and it is yet still coming. So I do believe that the power of the devil is broken. That is the power of death. Those who have faith in Jesus, those who have been redeemed, those who have been bought out of darkness and death and brought into light and life, the power of death is broken. Oh, we may die physical deaths. That, that's fine. But the second death has no harm on us. We can die physically, but we will be resurrected and we will live in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. And you can, if you missed our Sunday mornings on that, you can go back and check out uh, the last few chapters of Revelation. So in that sense, it is already, it has happened. And yet in another sense, it is not already. That when Jesus comes back, he will come back to an earth that is dominated by the devil, by the Antichrist, by the forces of evil. And he will set things right, and he will make all things new. And at that point, it will be, the kingdom of heaven will be in full, the power of death will be fully broken and destroyed. So there are those who act like Satan has no power anymore, that the, the forces of darkness are already defeated, but we can look around and see that's not true. We can read the scripture and see that's not what the scripture teaches. At the same time, there are those who act as if the devil and God are in some like eternal struggle, equal on equal, fighting each other, and it's a toss-up on who wins. Or that the devil is walking around and he's so much more powerful, so much stronger. Well, he's stronger than I am for sure, but he who is in me is greater than him. When when. God finally does bind the devil and, and throw him into the lake of fire. He doesn't even lift a finger. He just sends one of his like little helpers to go do it. So understand that what the writer here is speaking of is that Jesus has gathered us in and he has shared with humanity the freedom, the free gift of God that is eternal life. And because he himself suffered, verse 18 when he was tempted, so he is able to help those who are being tempted. What, he, what the writer's saying there is that Jesus doesn't just save us from our sins, but he identifies with us. He identifies with us. Verse 15, and free those who were held in slavery by their fear of death, for surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he has made them fully human in every way in order that they may become merciful and faithful high priests to serve God so that he might make atonement for their sins for the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, so he is able to help those who are tempted. So what he's saying is this. Jesus didn't die for the angels. Jesus died for you and for me. Jesus came to redeem his fallen creation, humanity. 
And not only to redeem us, oh, you'll go to heaven, but you just got to kind of wait around now. But he, he is working in us now. We don't live in optimistic times. And I understand why. I understand why we don't live in optimistic times. We are cursed with knowledge. You might remember you were either alive or you've heard about it. Most people have. You've heard of Watergate. You were alive during Watergate. One of the things that's really interesting is that when all of the information was coming out about Watergate, a large portion of Americans did not believe that it could happen because we had a faith, undeserved, but we had a faith in our leaders. Republicans or Democrats, you might not like the other side's candidate. You might think that they have terrible ideas. But generally speaking, Americans were content to believe the fictions we were presented with from every side. And so when President Nixon came out as as being somebody who had lied and and sent these guys to break into the the DNC's offices and then lied about that and a lot of Americans just it took them a while to believe but we live post watergate and we've seen corruption and we've seen where we were lied to and we've seen this thing and that thing and and so we were pretty cynical we don't have optimism. Most Americans believe that the best days are behind us as a nation and as a people. A lot of Americans believe the best days are behind us for individuals. There's a reason why talking about sanctification and God's work in this life is not as powerful as it, or as popular as it used to be. It's always powerful, but it's not as popular. And I think it has to do with our growing cynicism. That we believe that God will save us in the next life. We believe in eternity. We don't believe that this life is all there is. That, that is still resonant with people. If I were to just make a general statement, I don't believe that this life is all there is. Even people who are functionally agnostic, meaning I, there may be a God, but I don't know. Most people, if you sat them in a room, would agree with that statement. Or at least be open to it as a possibility. But to say that God really changes people's lives in the here and the now, in the present age, that's harder for us to believe because of experience. We've seen where somebody says, oh, I've changed. And then they don't. We've seen where somebody looked like they had good things happening in their life and we find out it's a fraud. And yet, when because Jesus did what he did, he lived a life of perfection, and he was victorious on the cross. He is able to help those who are being tempted. He is able to change us so that we might become merciful and faithful. And that looks different for different people. And what needs to change is different for different people. But I do not believe that we are saved just to wait around and do nothing. I firmly reject that. I believe that God saves us so that we might be part of his kingdom. 
And in eternity, we will be experience that fullness of the new life. But in the here and the now, I do not believe that God wastes time. And I believe that God in his mercy is able to change me and to change you. And I believe that God in his power is working on people. It may not be in the timeline that we want or that we would choose. Maybe God is working in you or in the person that you're thinking about in a way that we would say, well, why aren't you working on this other thing? And because God's saying, I need to work on this first. You, but what about this God? This is this huge thing. Why aren't you fixing that? Because this other thing has to get dealt with before I can get there. I believe that Jesus is working and moving and changing. And that when we are tempted to sin, Jesus is able to help us, and he's not able to help us not knowing what we have been through. He is able to help us knowing everything. Can I share a thought? It's just an opinion. I can't say that I know it for a fact. But this is something I do believe firmly. I believe that Jesus was tempted by every sin. Look, I want to be real careful because this is speculation and there's some mysteriousness. And if you disagree, that's fine. But I believe that Jesus was tempted by every sin. I believe that if you name a sin, in some way, Jesus experienced a temptation towards it. And that there is no person who can say, well, I am tempted to sin in such a way that Jesus could not understand and that Jesus is not able to help. I don't believe that. And that has some really troubling implications when you think about it. Jesus was tempted by that? Maybe, yeah. But the reason I believe that is because I believe these verses to be true. That he is able to help those who are being tempted because he was tempted. And I don't believe that there's any person who could come and say, Jesus doesn't understand what I'm going through. I don't believe that. There's no person who could come and say, Jesus is too, isn't powerful enough. Jesus isn't powerful enough to change my situation. I don't believe that. I don't. I believe that Jesus is powerful and changing lives. And that is not something that's easy to believe because of our cynical age. And you might say, Adam, well, you just, you're living in, you know, kind of a pie-in-the-sky fantasy land, but that's not how the real world works. Let me tell you, friend, I know more about the real world than you think. I have more reason to be cynical about the church and about people that talk big about you know, we call them God talkers in our house, talk big about faith and power and all this stuff. I got more reason than most people to be cynical. I believe that Christians should have a healthy skepticism. They should. Remember when that Asbury revival was breaking out, I don't think it was wrong to have a certain amount of healthy skepticism to say, okay, what's going on now? All right, all right. I mean, I'm not, there's a difference between skepticism and cynicism. Cynicism is jaded. It's often bitter. Cynicism lacks love often, not all the time, but often. Cynicism lacks hope. Skepticism is real. Skepticism prevents me from slipping into cynicism. Skepticism prevents me from falling into things that will raise cynicism up. Fine, be skeptical. Ask questions. 
But know this, that Jesus Christ conquered and broke the power of death, that is the devil, and freed those who were held in slavery. That is the good news of Jesus that we proclaim and that we affirm and we see here in the scripture. I want to say thank you for joining us for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study. New episodes are released on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Video versions are available on our YouTube page. You just have to search Faith on Hill on all those platforms. We appreciate the likes, subscribe, shares, all that kind of social media stuff. You can join us on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. for online or in-person church services. Small groups meet throughout the week. My name's Adam. We'll see you next time for another episode of the 20 Minute Bible Study.